0: Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. Now, a few weeks ago, I was able to spend around 20 minutes or so on the phone with uh, Senator Maureen Faruqi. Now, although it was a short conversation, we did cross a huge number of topics, including Senator Faruqi's rise into the male-dominated world of engineering and politics. And we also discussed racism in climate justice and just what kind of world could be built post the pandemic, as this period is and I quote, an opportunity to reimagine everything. Rebuilding should be a feminist and anti-racist process. So like I said, we did record this conversation a few weeks ago and we have had some delays in publishing some of our recent podcasts due to a few technical glitches and issues that we've had and we've been trying to overcome in our tiny team. We are getting there. So because it is a few weeks old, a few issues have moved on but they are just as timely, as important and as relevant as ever. Now, Senator Faruqi was appointed to New South Wales Parliament's Upper House in 2013, becoming the first Muslim woman to sit in an Australian Parliament. She later became the first Muslim woman in the Australian Senate in August 2018 and the 100th woman in the Upper House in 75 years. Please enjoy this conversation. Thank you for listening. Senator Faruqi, thank you for joining me. A real pleasure to be with you. I mean, we got in contact a few weeks back because we wanted to discuss uh, women and work and post-COVID and a lot of the issues going on around that at the moment, particularly childcare, superannuation and other things. And also to ask about your your career and, and, and how you've made this incredible career happen and the tr- transitions that you've made along the way as well. I don't think we can have that conversation without addressing, well, racism and racial inequality in Australia and internationally and the protests that we're seeing all over the world right now. So I note that on your Twitter you have the slogan that there can be no social or environmental justice without racial justice. So I would like to just start there. Given the conversation in Australia and internationally, do you do you think that message is getting through?
1: I mean, what I saw over the weekend in Australia, I have to say, was inspiring. It made me realise that more and more people are fired up and becoming aware of the centuries of systemic racism and discrimination against um, First Nations people in Australia, against black Americans in the US, and across the world, much of it, through colonisation. Um, so that does give me hope that mm-hmm. this could be a turning point, And we have to make it a turning point because enough is enough. You know, there can be no more deaths in custody. We have to stop that in Australia. We know that more than 400 um, Indigenous Australians have died in custody. And that is 30 years after the Royal Commission made recommendations to make changes. And those changes haven't need- been made. Um, It is completely unjust, unfair, and it has to be dealt with now. And I don't think people are willing to stand by or back off until, you know, we eliminate racism from Mm -hmm. our systems, from our institutions, from our society.
0: And can I ask that link about environmental justice? Because it is often a missed link with this as well. And it's I mean incredible to see that in the environmental movement that you don't always see a diverse range of voices included. Yeah, you've you've really made your career in there as an engineer. You went into sustainability as well.
1: We see in environmental movements, we have seen again for decades that they are not diverse at all. I mean, in Australia, First Nations people look after the looked after the environment for thousands of years. And we can see pretty clearly since colonization, species have started to go extinct. You know, we are literally destroying our environment because we see it as a resource to be used and abused. Or the colonizers saw it as a resource to be used and abused. And we must acknowledge that we are part of nature, not apart from it. And to be able to do that and to be able to really look at the root causes of why environmental destruction is happening, this has to be a movement which is diverse in breadth and in depth. So we must make sure that in Australia, Indigenous people are central, central to this movement of climate justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but across the world, we need to make sure that that happens. You know, there have been people of colour, Indigenous people who have been protecting the environment for centuries, mm. and now we don't see them. We don't see their faces. We don't hear their voices. So it is incumbent upon the climate justice movement, if it is about justice, to ensure that people who are the most vilified, um, the most discriminated against, the most marginalised, have to be at the centre of that movement. And that means that white folk, have to actually step aside and mm.
0: make space. Absolutely, with the, the, the with the bushfires as well. Um, this, this this came up particularly when we, we looked at the need for um, th- to go back and reflect on Indigenous land management and, and what has been going on for for, for, for for so long in the past that has often been ignored. Did uh, did you sense a shift? around that since the Australian bushfires on the need to reflect back on First Nations people and what they know about the land?
1: The conversation did change um, after that. We have to see how much action there is. Of course, you know, I'll be in my role pushing for that, that action, but it also kind of saddens me and frustrates me a little bit that it has to take a crisis for mm-hmm. us to realise what so many people have been saying uh, for decades. I think we can be more clever than that. We can be more wise than that and act before the crisis hit and listen to people who have been telling us, um, you know, these management practices for such a long time. But I really do hope that this is a turning point. And we have to make sure that it is. I think it's up to us, the people who live here, to make sure that politicians uh, and managers um, listen to us now more than ever.
0: You describe yourself as a woman, a migrant, a Muslim, a mother, and you've got this amazing video that is still pinned to the top of your Twitter account that I think that we ran an extract from on Women's Agenda when it first came out that really describes your story of the things that you were told that you can't do that you went and did anyway, Um, everything from uh, people telling you you couldn't play cricket to going and playing cricket to people telling you, you couldn't be an engineer to going and becoming an engineer like your father and even to not having access to a childcare centre and going to pushing to lead to to, to get one created at UNSW, which we'll go through in a second. But what, what where did you want to go with your career as a little girl? What did you imagine for yourself when you grew up?
1: I can tell you there was never a politician, never ever <laughs> in my wildest dreams. And especially, you know, after moving to a country in my 20s where I knew literally no one. It was never in my mind. You know, one thing uh, my mom tells me when people used to ask me when I was quite young what I wanted to be, I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and as I grew up, um, I just felt that that was a profession, um, you know, which you could really pass on your knowledge to others. Um, and so that was one thing that I always wanted to be, and hence, you know, my journey through UNSW uh, with higher degrees, so I could actually teach at university. But my mother also tells me that I often drove her to the end of her tether, just kind of mm. talking about uh, unfairness and injustice, and you know those battles to for her to let me fly kites uh, from the rooftop of my house or play cricket with the boys on the street. Things which, um, you know, young girls, the women really weren't—they weren't seen as things girls do. It was a boy's thing. So that always urged me. And I was lucky enough, and when I look back, I say lucky enough to have an aunt who was like a massive feminist and who really told me that no matter what, I have got to um, stand up and speak out when I see fairness and injustice, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the neighborhood, um, anywhere that it is. And I think those little fights and arguments that I had throughout childhood mm-hmm. can really do help me now in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics, you know, and I know some many people say this, but for me, it really was um, quite organic. My move to politics and uh, becoming a politician, in some ways, quite accidental. Uh, because I joined the Greens when I lived up in Port Macquarie, a small town, um, you know, with a very um, national heartland. Um, and I, stepped when, after 12 years of being in Australia, that's when I felt that I was settled enough to actually contribute. Mm. Uh, to my community and society, and I, you know, I kind of helped out with the refugee movement and bush care and land care, um, and that's where I met a few Green members, and I thought, you know, this is a movement that I could be aligned with, and it was just that It was being part of a movement for social um, and environmental justice, and then one thing led to the other, and, you know, here I am. It's
0: yeah, so, it so, so there was privilege no... to
1: be here as well
0: there was no key catalyst then that, that that drove you to to politics, particularly to join in the Greens. So it sounds like it was more um, around the, what the the people that you met, that issues that you were slowly getting involved in, where you lived.
1: It, it was part of that, but there were a couple of key catalysts, and they were around courage. So I saw in the Greens um, the courage to stand up for things that no other political party would. Um, so for instance, um, you know, the Tampa affair, um, the you know, the refugees mm-hmm. um on that um, ship, this was in the early two thousands and um it was I think um John Howard when they weren't allowing them to come to Australia to, to get refuge. And it was only Bob Brown, the leader of the Greens at that time, a single voice who had the courage to say that this is so unjust and unfair and they should be allowed mm-hmm. um to come to Australia or standing up to George Bush when he came into Parliament. Um, I think it was two, we had two senators at that time, and both of them kind of heckled George Bush, and they were kicked out of the chamber. And I think that's when I thought, nah, this is it, I have to join this party. Because they are, I mean, they have the courage and the boldness to put things on the agenda that no one else will. And, you know, reflecting back on my life, that's kind of what, I've been doing all along as well. So those were key catalysts when I joined the group. absolutely, Mm. apart from that their values pretty closely aligned with mine.
0: Okay. Okay, can I ask, I might take you back to studying engineering and then doing your PhD. Why did you want to pursue engineering? Was it seeing your father's work?
1: When it was, I was influenced by my father. My two older brothers uh, both also did civil engineering. Um, it was partly that, but it was partly again that uh, you know that business of inequality. You know, I, and civil engineering is a very heavily dominated mm-hmm. profession, um, not just in Pakistan but even in Australia. Uh, and for me, it was also about proving the point that women should um, be able to do whatever uh, men are allowed to do. Uh, so I wanted to make that point, and once I started civil engineering, I really kind of fell in love. Uh, with it as well, the idea of you know building things, and um, I was a bit of a math nerd as well, so that was helpful too. But that was um, why I just did civil engineering and basically pursuing masters and PhDs. That was towards my goal of teaching at a university.
0: W- were there many women in your class then?
1: There were four of us among no. the cohort of two hundred. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so no, yes. not many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean because even uh, yeah. today the numbers are still so low so I, I, I can't imagine when you're back stu- when you're studying so it's yeah, unfortunately there just hasn't been the, the there's been a little bit of shift in terms of women studying uh, STEM subjects but but not enough particularly in engineering
1: it hasn't and you know I was pretty shocked when I came here in 1992 I came on a Saturday and I, I started my master's on the Monday um, and growing up in Pakistan you kind of hear stories about you know, developed countries like Australia and America and how gender equality um, in every aspect of life has been um, reached there. But when I started um, the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at that time, there was only one female um, academic. Um, and that really shocked me. That I was really surprised that in this day and age, in the 1990s, this is how things were. And then when you live here more, you realise that you know, there are gender inequality gaps and pretty much everything here as well to a different level, but, you know, they still exist and, you know, our fight goes on. A
0: few weeks ago, we published a piece from you talking about childcare and how it, childcare really, really played a huge role in your career. And I'd love to hear the story about how it came about at university that you were able to access childcare. And of course, this is relevant to when we talk about women in COVID right now, because, Um, As we've seen the last couple of days has been significant changes to the free childcare that was put in place a few months back. We now know that that's going to be pulled back um, and we're now – I know on Women's Agenda definitely we're raising a lot of concerns about what that means for for women's workforce participation and for, for women's careers and being able to save for retirement and everything right now. So what was your experience of childcare? What role did it play in your career?
1: I would not have been able to do anything if I didn't have um, childcare. And you know, I have the utmost respect Angela for um, early childhood educators and um, you know, childcare because they they looked after my kids for years. I mean, when I started um, in my studies here, my son was one year old, and I pretty quickly realized that I would not be able to continue my studies without having some form of childcare. Because apart from attending, attending classes, which were generally at night, um, it was, you know, studying, doing research, doing your assignments and um, going to uni during the day as well. And so I started looking for childcare and again, very quickly understood that I couldn't afford, you know, i had come here, we, we didn't have jobs, my husband was driving the cab to make ends meet. So, we had no way um, we could afford childcare. But luckily, at that time, there was a bit of a movement among students happening at UNSW, which I became part of. And, you know, we were lucky enough and forceful enough to lobby um, the university to start the first childcare, cooperative childcare center at UNSW. And it was minimal budget. Uh, we had, um, you know, a, it was different rules than we had one. Um, you know, qualified child care worker. And at the start of it, it was the parents who were actually uh, working there, just volunteering uh, to look after our children. But that was a lifeline for me. Um, and just made, not just um, had a really good place where my son was being cared for and educated, but made really good connections with people there as well. And that's mm. where how my network of friends actually started. Um, and I think it's such a huge mistake. Uh, for this government to end free childcare. Thousands of families have been so hit by COVID nineteen crisis and they will be forced to make some very, very difficult um choices right now. And childcare for me is a universal service. It it should be free. Mm. Um and I say while I was a student I had you know we got that um lucky and had that had a place which we could afford. But once I finished studying and started working and I started working part-time initially in my career. I can tell you that I think almost all of my pay was going to early childhood care for my children. And I hear that the same story now from so many people. Um, and really, that shouldn't be the case. And of course, it's going to um, like it's going to affect women the most um, because whether we like it or not, we are still the main carers of families. And, you know, women might have to reduce their work hours it might be very difficult to find work. And I am really concerned that access to childcare will again be out of reach of so many families. But I think also, having said that, you know, I have the utmost respect for um, childcare workers and early childhood educators. I think there's a real issue of how, um, of their wages and conditions. And that's something that should be part and parcel of how we reimagine childcare. You know, it has to be universal. It has to be free. Uh, and people working in the sector, which again are mainly women, um, have to be um, treated fairly and with wage and conditions that are cognizant of the incredible, incredible work in education that they provide for our children.
0: So the, the, the idea of universal childcare, I mean, it's my colleague Georgie Dent is a huge advocate on childcare and is really was leading a push to try and get the government to avoid doing this snapback, which has actually just occurred. But you know she puts it that we, we 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 understand that that school is universally available why don't we understand that childcare could be as well which would just make such a huge difference to to women's workforce participation to women's careers and I think about your experience there and I know that's certainly my experience and I know that from my friends as well who are currently paying childcare fees and we try to go with that idea that well you know it's not if you're in a two-parent household it's not necessarily from your own income it should be from the family's um, income that childcare is being paid. But at the same time we've been socialized to think that way. And also if we're up against a gender pay gap, if we're working part time already, if we've taken those career breaks, then we really are likely to to see it that way, that to to question if uh, if working is really going to be worth it if so much of what we're working for ends up going back to childcare. But I look at it in your case, you oh, wouldn't absolutely. have had the career that you've had if you didn't go ahead and, and do it. So
1: mm. Absolutely, and like you said, there's so many of us in in that situation, and I know that Georgie Deng has been doing incredible, um, you know, work on this, and all power to her. I mean, you know, childcare, early childhood education, it's so important for families, for women, for children, and for society as a whole, and exactly like you said, if we can conceive of schools being um, universal and fee-free, I think we should apply the same rules to childcare and we should apply the same rules to university and state education is so important for society as a whole and for individuals Um, that it should really be, there should be no barriers uh, for accessing it.
0: So in this, I feel like in this, this pandemic period that it feels like we had this, I don't know if we still have this opportunity or not, but it certainly did feel like we had this opportunity around a reset how it was this time to, to rethink and as things were very much exposed for the the the, the, the issues that, that, that were there, that were underlying there, that were causing gender inequalities, that were causing uh, racial inequalities, that were um, causing uh, the richer to get richer and the poorer to get poorer, that now was an opportunity to to really reset on what we want our world and our economy to look like. Can I ask, what would you how would you visualise what could be rebuilt in Australia through or post the pandemic?
1: I mean, for me, I think it, we, this is an opportunity to kind of reimagine literally everything. We cannot go back to the world we were in uh, post-pandemic. I think it's fair to say that COVID-19 has exposed already existing cracks and inequalities in society and actually exacerbated them. So, you know, the difference in conditions for casual and permanent workers, for instance, Mm -hmm. between temporary and permanent visa holders, it's also laid bare how messed up our housing system is, Um, because, you know, there's so many people who, um, you know, were at risk of not having a roof over their head because they couldn't afford it. Uh, And of course, we know that COVID-19 has been a gendered crisis and women have been not just at the front line of, their, of the response to their work as teachers, nurses, and in the healthcare system, which are areas with predominantly feminized workforce. But women generally earn less. They have less savings. Um, there are many women in secure casual jobs, So the impacts are and will be compounded because of that. And of course, we know that women are often tasked with providing the increased care and support that's needed in families at this time as well, I made so many uh, friends at the moment, have discussions with them who have school-going children. How hard life has been with children at home and having to work from home as well. Mm. Um, So it is really difficult. And lock up and isolation, of course, at home has placed women more at risk of domestic violence.
0: Mm. And Angela,
1: I raised at the very start of the pandemic, we have one, we had one sitting day in Parliament, and I used that time to actually talk about because I kind of could see. Um, What was coming, I talked about the gendered nature of this crisis, and I can tell you I was vilified and attacked by the right-wing media who accused me of playing identity politics or framing COVID as a gendered crisis. Mm. Um, But I think as it has gone on, more and more people have realized that that is what is happening. So when we rebuild and, um, you know, we're going through this recovery phase, We have to make sure that women and women's rights organizations are front and center of this planning and decision-making that happens. Mm. I mean, so many more people have become aware of these inequalities, and I think um, that's something to take forward. But with more people becoming aware of these inequalities, I think more people want a change. More people want a reimagining of You know, our housing system, which is so Mm. looked at as a market rather than the human rights, for instance, or our universities, which are in real crisis at the moment. But I think especially coming back to uh, women as well, when we, um, you know, talk about women, uh, I do want to acknowledge that there is a huge diversity of Mm. women in society. And we must really look at the specific needs of all the various groups. Um, that make up this big group of women, you know, for example, indigenous women, migrant women, women of colour, women with disability or trans women, because needs are different. And this is an opportunity to really look at them. So, you know, rebuilding should be first and foremost a feminist and an anti-racist project.
0: How do we, I mean, I think one example I look through this is, is superannuation, say, when so early access superannuation and it seems like the, the Morrison government didn't actually um, look at any gender analysis on this or think about how different groups might be affected by this early access um, scheme. And we've seen that in the figures, so more men are accessing their superannuation than women, um, which could come down to the fact that men tend to have more superannuation already, but also that women know that message about um, the, 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 the huge retirement uh, gender gap that's out there, but as you mentioned, you talk about yeah consulting different groups. Is that what's needed here to to try and get a better understanding of exactly how different groups will be affected? To go to different organisations and to bring them in and invite them into the to the table rather to to share their views on on what rebuilding should look like.
1: I mean, you're absolutely right, um, Angela. That you know, comfortable retirement is a pipe dream for many women, and it's not guaranteed at all. I think in general, women have half the super uh, of what men have, and there obviously many reasons for that, And especially older women, uh, women over fifty, I think um, mm. are will really be in financial stress. Uh, we know that you know because they took time off to look after children, um, they were paid less, you know they um, super didn't kick in for many of them till later um, in life. And of course, we have to consult with not just with groups but with individuals as well. So uh, in the Greens, we're going through a process at the moment uh, for developing a Green New Deal uh, Mm -hmm. for Australia. I mean, this is a concept that has been around for some time now. And it is really about massive government investment in, in a plan prepared by the people. So massive government investment to make sure that, you know, services like, uh, like housing and education uh, and health are universal services, uh, that they are for the public, not for private profit. Um, and in doing that, we are consulting people across um, Australia, like individuals and others, to make sure um, that, you know, that movement is um, anti-racist, um, it is feminist, and it has Indigenous people at the centre of this. So absolutely those voices uh, have to be heard because when you're making policies uh, for people and you don't actually have listened to their lived experience, I think those policies are not going to address um, the needs and requirements of those people. So this is really a time where we need to make sure that there is genuine engagement and listening, learning and then acting on what people are saying.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting and enlightening and I wish you well on your way to Canberra today and obviously getting some of these issues heard as well. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Angela. It's been such a pleasure talking with you.
0: And that was the Women's Agenda podcast for another week. Thanks for listening and just a reminder that you can find out more on all the stories we discuss in this podcast over on our website You can subscribe to our daily newsletter and also check out our new member platform designed to support our journalism, Women's Agenda Extra. Thanks for listening.